Good morning. My name is Anthony. If I don't know you, I'm the pastor of Valley Hope. Uh, you can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 8, the fourth verse. Um, I don't, I don't want to repeat uh, anything that Amy just said. I want to say something about the Leadership Summit, though. Man, this sanctuary is really imbalanced. What's going on? What happened over here? Everybody was just like, nope, we're going on this side. I don't know who's sitting there first, but it's Rick. That's what it was. It was Rick. Oh, okay. All the kids will be coming over there. All right. So this is about to be a mosh pit in a little bit. Um, uh, ten years ago, uh, I became the pastor of Valley Hope in October. It'll be ten years, and um, I was the only person, staff person here, and um, that was amazing that we survived. And we then, a few years later, hired Jeremiah, and last year hired Amy. And uh, I was sitting in the, I came in to the leadership summit yesterday and sat in the back, uh, because it's not my thing. I, it's not the thing that I was leading. I was attending, um, and I wanted Jeremiah and Amy to lead. And uh, it was such a pleasure for me to watch them lead like that, um, both of them, put together an excellent place for our leaders to be encouraged and equipped, for our leaders to, who are not me to dream and to talk about their hopes for this church. I also felt incredibly overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to lead all of these people. And uh, I actually had to walk out of the room because I just felt the weight of responsibility, like, oh my gosh, please don't screw this up. God, help me. But coming back, back into the room and seeing all this energy and enthusiasm from people who are not paid to be there, who are giving their Saturday morning, you, uh, you benefit from that. And some of you are part of that. Um, but I want you to be encouraged and to, to also thank you for letting me be a part of this, this team as well. It's incredibly meaningful for me uh, to see where we've come. And uh, I look forward to see where we're going. Because uh, I, I, I think that's some cultural things that will only grow uh, in advance. So especially thankful to Jeremiah and Amy for their work uh, in leading that. All right, uh, we're continuing on in Acts chapter 8. Now we're starting at the fourth verse. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they testified and spoke in the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you've called us here to hear this word. And God, we thank you that your word is, uh, is yours. It's not uh, anybody else's, but it bears your own power and authority. And God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word. God, may, may I speak your words and not my own. And, and may any of my own words fall away. Let our hearts be open to receive these, the words of your gospel. Amen. Uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, I told you that Luke laid out for us in the words of Jesus kind of the, the recipe for how this book was going to progress. That Jesus said to his disciples that they were to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we're entering into this small section in the book of Acts where you start to see things happen in Samaria. So it's only a, a small section of the book, and then events will move beyond Samaria. Uh, Samaria is uh, a region, the, the translation that we read out loud said the city of Samaria, it probably ought to say uh, a, a city of Samaria. Uh, Samaria is a region just north of Jerusalem, and it's where Samaritans live. You've probably heard of Samaritans. Uh, and Samaritans are this, uh, this descendant, this offshoot of the Jewish people that are known uh, by the Jewish people for having intermarried during times in Israel's history when there was invaders and exile. Uh, and they do not like Samaritans, to say the least. I was reading some commentators talking about how Jewish people would talk about Samaritans. It's pretty nasty. Um, they, they talk about these people as, as pork eaters, which if you're a Jew is really gross. It's forbidden. Um, they, they basically say that these people love to sacrifice fetuses uh, ritually. These things are probably not true, but this is how they talk about Samaritans. And so this is kind of some shocking events that are going on. And uh, we see this region that's kind of distasteful, symbolized and, and emblemized by this man. Simon, the magician. Now, um, I, I have always loved, even when I was a little kid, stories of magic. There's, those are the, the kinds, I read a lot when I was a, a little kid, and still read a lot. And all, all of my favorite stories to read were in magical worlds. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings... Um, a bunch of other fantasy series you probably have never heard of. By the way, I'm so glad I grew up without the internet because if you search in the internet fantasy books, different things are revealed than when I was a child looking for fantasy books. 
I loved stories of uh, magic. And especially, you know, later in life, Harry Potter came later for me. I graduated from college, and I was a teen center director in Asheville. And none of those kids read anything, but this one kid who was terrible at school was reading this massive book uh, called Harry Potter. And he was telling me he was going to go wait in line for hours for this next huge book to come out. And I was like, dude, what? What are you reading? And he said, it's Harry Potter. It's great. You've got to read it. And I was like, I don't know, man. I think I'm kind of over that. Uh, but I'll read one of these for you. And I read the first book in like, I don't know, 12 hours. It's a pretty small book. And it's really oriented toward, towards kids in a way that many of the later books are not. And I was like, this is pretty good. I'll read the next one. And that took a couple days. And I was like, this is, this is good. I'll read the next. I read all of them, okay? I read all of them very quickly. Uh, I didn't wait in line for the seventh book. I came just in time to not have to wait in line. I read them all. And I loved them. And I commended them to everyone, including now I'm watching my kids read them. And there's something about a magical world that captured me and still, still grabs a hold of me. The idea that there is something Uh, about the world that we see that is just kind of just behind the veil of what we can see. And that something could be unveiled and we could access this other kind of world in a a real and true way. I I feel like it's not uncommon for us to be sitting at home and, and hoping that we ourselves will also receive an invitation to go to Hogwarts. That, that my life could forever be changed by this moment of unveiling where I'm not what I thought I was. I'm actually a lot more. And I, I can go be a part of this really cool, awesome world. That has always gripped me. And in these stories, there is sort of one of these tropes that runs throughout these different kinds of stories. That there are these people in the world who uh, are, are invested in a deep knowledge of magic who want to control the world and have power. And they're often, almost always, undone but why, by what is actually an older and deeper magic. But it's the people who are invested in newer magic who are bound up in controlling the world's systems. Simon the Magician is a purveyor of that kind of magic. And you have to understand, the text is not telling you that Simon the Magician is like one of these hokey party trick people. Okay, He's not an illusionist, which is its own kind of cool, and I just don't deal with those people because I can't figure out what they're doing and it drives me nuts. He's not that kind of illusionist. He's a real magician. The text does not say he pretends to have power. He actually has power. And he does great things. Miraculous, powerful things with this magic that he pervades. And he has this reputation amongst these Samaritan people as a great and powerful person. And Simon comes into conflict and comes into contact with Philip. And Philip is one, we've seen his name previously. He's one of these seven. We we read about Stephen, talked about Stephen. And Philip is one of these other seven. 
And Philip comes into Samaria, out of Jerusalem, obeying Jesus, goes into this, um, this region that is set aside that people literally will walk around rather than walk through. And he starts proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and incredible things happen. So that even Simon the magician, this purveyor of this newer magic, says, something superior is in front of me. And I want to be a part. It says he believes. He's baptized. He follows Philip around. And the story begins to to take a different turn for Simon when the apostles come from Jerusalem. They come up, they come north, Peter comes up, and, and what they're doing is in this weird thing. They're praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit because for some reason they have not yet. It's really odd because it never happens that way in the rest of the book of Acts. It's not the ordinary course of things. But for whatever reason, they've been baptized in the name of Jesus, have not received the Holy Spirit, and they are there so that they have the full and ordinary Christian experience of being baptized in water and receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon sees what's happening when they're doing that, and he says, I want in. I want to be a part. I want to do this thing. I'll pay you so that I might have the power to do this when I lay hands on people. Now, this is the way that he has approached the entirety of his career and his life. That there is power available And he could previously be hired to to dispense that power. And now he wants to have that kind of in his skill set. He wants to add this version on his business card, on his LinkedIn profile, that he also has this certification. And Peter's response is not at all gentle. Your text softens up for you in English. What What it ought to say that Peter says is, To hell with you and your money. That's what he really says. Because he says, you are so caught up in this alternative kind of spirit of rebellion and disobedience. This thing has, what you are are steeped in has no place in the kingdom. And Simon is invited, commanded to repent. The text is actually kind of nebulous about what happens. We're not really sure about the state of Simon's soul. It's led people to wonder, like, maybe he wasn't really, maybe he didn't believe, but he says he did. Calvin, commenting on this, says, it seems like he has the kind of faith that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, where where the seed falls on ground in their shallow roots and it gets either snatched away or withered in the sun. His belief is is shallow. It is narrow. Simon's issue as a magician is that he wants to be able to control the dispensing of the power of God. And Simon's magical thinking is not uncommon. Now, most of us are not going to call ourselves magicians of any kind. 
We, we kind of laugh at the idea that there is magic in the world that, that actually has power, that's not just illusion, this controlling of spiritual power. We would say, that's silly. I would never do that. But Simon's way of thinking is incredibly normal for how people approach their life with God. And you probably have seen it running in the undercurrents of your own heart without even really paying attention to it. It springs up for Simon in this way, in being a magician, but it manifests in all kinds of ways throughout the Bible. The most appealing thing of idolatry in the Old Testament is that you can control the presence of the gods in your home. You can shape an image and and make the presence of the gods concrete and put them on a shelf. And if they're bothering you there, you can move them or you can throw them out. You can go to the right one to get you the thing that you want. Idolatry and magic thinking is normal to humans. This version of it feels foreign because the language is slightly different than what we're used to. But it is tied up in how we approach it. And what we ought to pay attention to is how close Simon is to the real and good thing. Simon believed and was baptized and following an evangelist around. That is some dedication. Simon is, in essence, brand new church folk. And we ourselves ought to examine the same kind of request that Simon makes. Let me, by what I can pay for, have power over what God will do. And let me me demonstrate to you how this probably works in your life. It's probably most keenly felt and your life of prayer. You want something, probably a really good thing, deeply. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you do not get it. And you ask, what was the point of my prayer? You and I are inclined to believe that the purpose of prayer and the sign that you are praying correctly is getting what you want. That is magical thinking. If I pray long enough or in the right way, with the right words, if I feel the right things while I am praying, that will make God give me the things that I desire. And if that is your approach to prayer, as it often is for all of us, you can just slip right into that thinking. The, The distance between you and Simon the magician is negligible, almost nothing. The only difference is you don't like mix in incantations and some incense or something like that. And this isn't the only kind of way that you and I experience this. We also have expectations If I follow God, if I obey him, if I do what I should, I, for example, will have power. 
We see this all the time play out in American media and politics. Church folk sidling up to political people, craving power, and seamlessly blending in, following Jesus, withholding political power. I, I ought to have a spouse. I'm single. I'm, I'm, I need to be remarried, whatever it is. And if I follow Jesus... I ought to have that in my life. Why is God, I'm doing everything that I should do. Why is God not giving me this? And underneath all of those kinds of things, and there are thousands of examples of that, is the assumption that my behavior becomes the mechanism by which I can make God do what I want him to do. And we will never say it as starkly and honestly as this, but in the darkest places of our heart, our cry is, I should command God. I ought to be the one to hold the reins of power, and God is the means by which I receive what I actually want to receive. God is a tool in my hands. And when he fails to do what I want him to do, something is wrong with the tool. Now see, when all of our, our ambitions and our expectations and our assumptions get, get exposed like that, we hear how deeply creepy that sounds. Because this kind of magic hides in plain sight that you and I might be imprisoned by it. But what Simon hears, and what he hears very clearly from Peter, is that God will be controlled by no one. He is uncontrollable. Now that sounds terrifying at some level. Anything being uncontrollable sounds terrifying. And we're talking about a being full of power and majesty. And he is uncontrollable. That is a bit scary. But you and I best pay attention because it's true. He will not be dictated to on my terms, by my ideas and my ambitions. Listen to how the text even presents this thing, that the Spirit has not come as they expected him to. Even in Simon's own story is this demonstration of this truth that God is uncontrollable. And he will not be controlled by you or by me because you and I are terrible taskmasters. You and I are petty tyrants whose whims and ambitions blow like the wind. And if we had power in our hands, would often and every day choose to govern the world and our own lives towards awful ends 
terrible, awful end. Ends that would bind you in slavery and death were you to be given unmitigated control of the universe. And so when Peter looks at Simon and he says, to hell with you and your money, he means it. Because the arc of my desires, uncontrolled and unrestrained, is exactly that place. A place of darkness and slavery and death. And so when God says no to you, or when God, where God answers you with silence on a thing that you have begged and pleaded for, what you are invited to believe is that God is saying yes to something better and he will not be dictated to by you on your terms and leave you to your own devices, which are slavery and death and the powers of hell themselves. He refuses to bow the knee to you and give you something so awful as giving you what you want. And at the heart of the way that God works in the world, because he will not be bought, he will not be traded with, he presents a deeper kind of magic. If I might use the words of C.S. Lewis. What you and I fail to understand in the foundations of the world's making is that the maker of heaven and earth, who will be unbound and uncontrolled for all of time, intended to give you the best that you could imagine as a gift. He did not put a price tag on what he desired to do, and he will not let you buy it. He did not set a value on it that you might trade him something else. Instead, what the maker of heaven and earth put into the very foundations of the world's making was his own desire to give you a gift and to purchase it for you by the sacrifice of his own love. And this is something that burbles up in all of these kinds of stories, that the deep magic of the world that defeats the powers of craving and control is sacrificial love. And the undoing of all of these demonic and dark imprisoning powers that Simon is tied up in is the gift of Jesus' own sacrificial love on your behalf. That you and I who would come to him and attempt to dictate the terms of our own relationship, even as people who are baptized and following him who are still yet inclined to climb up on the throne and ask God to bow the knee to us, God always saw that that was my inclination and yours in the face of repeated mercy. And God still said to those people, I will give a gift and I will sacrifice myself to set my love on them. And that is way better 
then whatever you and I are trying to use God to obtain for ourselves. And so when we say God is uncontrollable, it is the best news because our vain ambitions won't dictate him or constrain him or imprison him by our own tiny, fragile little minds and fickle hearts. He is uncontrollable and he says I will make you my people and you I will be your God that is the promise of the whole story he says it to these idolaters in Deuteronomy who are about to do exactly what he tells them not to do and forget again and again what he's done for them because they want to control the outcomes of their lives. And he still says to them with absolute determination, I will be your God and you will be my people. And every time they forget, he sends the prophets to tell them this thing again and again and again. I will be your God and you will will be my people. And this is the gift that he is not offering to let you buy. And he will not trade with you. These are the terms. They are the same for Simon as they are for you. Repent and believe. Repent and receive. The great gift of this deeper magic that God has wind into the world might work its way to free you into his own family. If you are here today and you have never trusted God, never, maybe you have looked like a Christian, maybe you've had the appearance of faith and belief, Today, hear the instruction to Simon and respond. Repent and believe. And today, maybe you do actually follow Jesus. Your faith is real. But in this moment, something in your heart is being exposed. You've kept this area of your life, this desire that you have, this good thing, to grow up like a weed, to possess you and to control you. You've not let God be the uncontrollable Lord over that thing. And so you're convicted. That thing that you're feeling is a conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when you hear that voice, I want to be very clear that you understand that is not the voice of shame, the voice of a scolding father. That is the voice of the Father who has revealed himself in his Son, crucified to a cross. And he's saying to you, even now, rebel child, I want to give you a gift. I don't care. I don't care how much you've rebelled against me and disobeyed time and time again. You feel like what you deserve is shame. What I'm giving you is a gift. Again and again and again. Because that's who he is. Repent and believe and be received into, receive the depths of God's uncontrollable love for you, his people. This is your God. And you are his people. 
now and forever. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your great mercy. Father, there are are, um, so many people here today who, if they were just totally honest with you and with others, would say that they're disappointed with you. They're disappointed that you would not give them what they wanted when they wanted. Good things, so many good things, healing, romance, friendships, security, good things. They're hurt and disappointed. And Father, I pray that you would speak to their disappointment and then you would show them your own goodness that supersedes the goodness of the thing that they asked for. And God, I pray the seeds of faith would go deep in their hearts. As they look at at the the mixed nature of their life, of terrible things happening and, and wonderful things happening, and God, I pray that you would help them to believe and to trust that by offering yourself as the whole promise of the gospel, just and only and all you, you are not offering them less than. Help them to trust that. And Father, I pray for people who are here today who have never trusted you in that, whether they're people who come to church all the time or people who've just come today for the first time in a long time or the first time in never. And Father, I pray that today you'd do a miracle in their heart and they would trust you with all of these things. And God, I pray for those who follow you now, those of us who who are so easily inclined to slip into magical thinking and to manipulate you into doing what we want. God, I pray that you forgive us and have our hearts captured by a greater joy, this deeper joy that comes from seeing your own gift. Father, we love you and we're so grateful for your faithfulness. It is our great rest, our great joy to the victory is pried out of the hands of dark powers of our own hands and is claimed inconquerably and uncontrollably by you. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus, and offer you all praise and glory. Amen. As we...